This episode comes with a content warning. The story includes discussion of sexual assault, addiction, and suicide. Stephen Covey is a popular author, and he wrote the best-selling book titled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Great book, highly recommended. In that book, Covey tells a personal story that's come back to my mind many times in the years since I first read that book. This is what he wrote. I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then, suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt like was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently, and because I saw differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. So I've never forgotten that story. All the people we encounter while we're just going through our day-to-day -day lives, they're going through some things that we know nothing about. It's easy to judge someone or form an opinion based on what we observe, but there are always other factors that we can't see. I think in a lot of cases, if we knew what was really going on, our anger or impatience might be replaced with empathy and compassion. My guest today is Kylie. She's been through some trauma, and you'll hear it in her voice as she talks with the 911 dispatcher. 
I think her story might help all of us to perhaps see things from a perspective other than our own. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? For this story to make sense, we need to have a little bit of background on Kylie and how she first met Amber, because the way they ended up together was unexpected and not typical. Kylie was 18 years old at the time. She's also bisexual. She had a group of friends, but she was starting to feel left out sometimes. This was a group of, I don't know, I'd say maybe a core six to eight people. There would be people coming and going, and there was kind of growing pains with that. It sort of made the relationship between me and the core three struggle a lot. I started feeling like they were excluding me a lot from things. And I just sort of felt like I was being pushed out. Kylie's best friend at the time was Jordan, and Jordan's boyfriend was Skye. When Skye turned 21, they all got together to celebrate. It was Skye's 21st birthday party. So of course, there was a lot of alcohol. Um, I was underage at the time, but uh, was still drinking with them because they were my friends. At this party, there was, you know, the main core group, but then there was also a lot of people that I didn't necessarily know that they had known for a long time, like the rest of the group had known for a long time. When most of the party was outside, you know, doing God knows what, smoking cigarettes or whatever, who was left inside was myself and this girl who I didn't know. And she introduced herself as, as Amber. Kylie and Amber found that they had some things in common. I'd never met her before, but she had known these guys since middle school. They all went to school together. She went to a different high school than us, uh, and she was a little bit older than me. She would have been, uh, she was 21 at the time. We talked a lot about sort of our relationships to the people that were at this party and, and our friends and how we'd both sort of been feeling this exclusion happening, like we were getting pushed out. This is something that we had in common with each other, so we sort of bonded over that. But Kylie soon discovered that the alcohol kind of turned Amber into a different person. She got drunker, as all of us did, but her particularly. As I would come to find out, she had sort of an issue with alcohol, and she was being really handsy with me, um, like in front of people. So touching me, taking like putting her hand under my shirt and trying to like take my bra off, and just being like really on me, uh, which makes me uncomfortable, you know, because I don't know this person. 
So I didn't really appreciate that she was doing this in front of people. And I kept telling her to kind of back off and was really embarrassed by this and not really scared yet at that point because nothing like super bad had happened yet at that point. A good number of people had taken their Ubers home. Um, I had planned on crashing on the couch and uh, she, you know, apparently had the same intention. She was quite drunk, so. Jordan and Skye went to their room, or to Skye's room, and so we were left alone in his house, in his living room. She began getting worse with the physical contact. Really rough and really, like, painful. Uh, so when she grabbed, it was, like, forcefully, and she would bite when kissing. So she was biting like she was trying to bite through my skin. There was no restraint. It hurt a lot. I was really, it was really painful. You know, she, when I told her to stop, you know, she might kind of back off for a second, you know, and then she'd go right back into it as if she forgot that I told her to stop. And she was very, very belligerently drunk at this point. It was like, she couldn't understand what I was saying or she was just ignoring. I I don't really know what was going through her head, but she undressed me and bit my chest like she was going to bite through the skin. All of this was extremely, extremely painful. At one point, I started crying. So, I mean, I gave her plenty of notice that this was not okay, and she she kept going. Finally, I was able to get myself up off the couch and go to the bathroom. I was like, how oh, I really have to pee? I really have to pee. And that was like the only thing that could get me off of that couch to where she would stop hurting me. I looked in the mirror in the bathroom and I just wept to myself because I realized like, what the hell just happened? Because I'm like, it wasn't necessarily rape, but it was like, I didn't want it. It hurt a lot. I feel like I gave plenty of, of notice that it was not okay. And she just like, she just didn't care. Kylie figured this was her opportunity to make up an excuse to leave and just get out of the situation. After I left the bathroom, I just made a beeline for my bag and my keys. At this point, it had been at least a couple of hours of just this awful treatment and so uh, the time had sobered me up and it, you know surely the adrenaline had sobered me up to, to where I felt comfortable trying to drive home you know as it was Christmas Eve I did have a family to get back to uh, it was actually going to be my parents uh, my parents and I's last Christmas together because they we were we were going to separate after pretty much in the next few months so that would be our last Christmas together um, so I, I, you know, I told her this, I was like, Hey, you know, I really have to get home. Like that was enough for her to, to kind of back off and, and let me get in my car and, and leave the situation. So their first interaction was obviously not a pleasant one. Kylie told some of their mutual friends what happened and they were kind of shocked by it. Some of them wanted to all get together as a group and talk about what happened. But Kylie wasn't really on board with that. She decided she could handle this on her own as an adult. 
so she messaged Amber and asked about getting together to discuss what happened. And I said, hey, um, you know, would you be willing to talk about what happened? I just, I just want to understand what was going through your head, you know? And at first she was like, well, what the hell? Like, what do you mean you want to come over? You said that I raped you. Um, so, like, why would you feel safe coming over? And so I said, well, I definitely didn't say that you raped me because that didn't happen. I explained to her that, you know, people are twisting my words around, that I didn't say that, and that I felt pretty confident that the trouble that this had caused her would prevent her from doing anything to harm me. <laughs> and she agreed, and she said, yeah, this has caused quite a bit of an issue. So Kylie went over to Amber's place, and they talked. But this time, no alcohol. Oh, yeah, she was sober. <laughs> we, were, we were very sober during this. Only about an hour of it was actually what we came there to talk about. I basically just explained, you know, hey, this is, this is how I perceive what happened. This is how it affected me. I don't think you're a horrible, awful person for it. I just think that, you know, you should really be careful when you're drinking because, you know, you did this. She didn't blame the alcohol, but, uh, you know, she, she did actually take accountability. Like, hey, you know, I really I'm really sorry that that I hurt you. And, and this is really going to change, like, how I interact with people in the future. She apologized. And I, I let her know, I said, hey, you know, if anybody gives you any shit for this um, going forward, there's really no reason for it because it happened to me. It happened, you know, to us. Uh, and if the two people who were involved in the situation have resolved it, then there's really no reason why anybody else should should get a say, you know. So they worked it out and got that issue resolved. But the conversation continued and they were both enjoying getting to know each other. Kylie was there for another four hours. We were just hanging out and getting to know each other. It was like before. It was like before she got too drunk, you know? Uh, she told me about her family and what music she likes and, you know, our dating history, job history. You know, meeting, meeting somebody conversation. We watched a movie together. We watched uh, Wonder Woman. <laughs> You know, we we really just hung out. It was incredible because I never thought that it would end up like this. I mean, she felt horrible after the first time we met, you know, like I would like I would never come back from it. And, you know, somehow I mustered up the courage to forgive this person. And she ends up kind of becoming a, you know, somebody who I look forward to talking to more. So in spite of that bad first encounter... Kylie and Amber's connection grew stronger pretty quickly. And that brings us to Kylie's story of what happened. We only knew each other for such a short amount of time, but we really sort of became each other's little world. You know, we were texting each other every day. We'd text when I was at work. It sort of took on a flirtatious direction, and we sort of began going into that avenue again with each other, but in a healthier and consensual way, and which is, you know, even, even more surprising that we would even go down that route. I was going over there 
uh, every day, just hanging out at her house. You guys were now pretty special to each other. Yeah, we were we were very insulated with each other. We weren't really doing or or seeing or or you know anything really that wasn't involving the other person those few weeks. Then there was the night of January the 13th. Yeah. What happened that night? Uh, so that night I I had uh, worked and I picked up rice to eat and I didn't plan on going over there because she um, she hadn't invited me at that point and uh, I had a habit of feeling like I need to give people their distance because I don't want to be around somebody too much and make them feel sick of me. So I was just giving her power to invite me if she wanted me there or not have me there if she didn't want me there. So I wasn't going to try to force myself into, you know, into going over there because I didn't want to be overbearing. So I planned on just being home that night, eating my rice and sleeping in my bed at home. But she texted me. And I knew that she had been at a bar that night because I saw her Instagram story. She was at um, some sports bar in Smyrna. And she was a big football fan, a big football fan, uh, specifically for the Falcons, the Atlanta football team here. And there was a football game that night that she was watching at that sports bar in Smyrna. And it was Falcons versus Philadelphia. Philadelphia fans are very uh, passionate. Um, they're, you know, sort of have a reputation here of starting fights and, you know, just sort of just sort of being a lot. So Amber had gotten into something with one of those people? Yeah. Yeah. She um, had gotten into, well, I don't really know what the extent of the fight was, whether it got physical or whether they were just yelling at each other, but... She she described a situation in the bathroom where it had gotten intense and she thought about the fact that she carried a gun with her and, you know, she thought about pulling the gun out during this fight. You know, of course she didn't pull out the gun, but the, the thought came through her head. She was drunk as well. And I'm sure also she was thinking about, well, you know, I've, hurt someone when I was drunk before. So I think that thought really freaked her out. She managed to get herself home. Uh, she Ubered. So she gets home and she's quite upset. And she texts me, come get back in my bed so I don't kill anyone. And I told her, I'm having rice right now. Do you mean that you want me to come back over tonight or tomorrow? She just says, now. I said, let me finish up my din-din and I'll get changed and head out. She says, KK, I'll try to not hurt anyone till then. And then I told her I was leaving. The thing that comes to my mind right now is why in the world does she have a gun? Yeah, I, um, I had thought about that a few times before that. So she, uh, like I said, when, when we had, uh, you know, we we're first getting to know each other, she told, she, she told me about her job history. Uh, she used to work at the Glock factory, I believe, in the shipping department of the Glock factory. So, And Glock, of course, is a major manufacturer of handguns. And this was uh, you know, a few years prior that she worked there. So I assumed, uh, because I don't know much about guns, so I didn't really know 
um, the brand of gun that she had. I'd seen her gun before, but I didn't know that it wasn't a Glock. So, but I had assumed it was a Glock because she worked a Glock. And I assumed she had it for a few years at that point. And sort of my rationale there was like, oh, well, you know, she seems knowledgeable enough about it. And if she's had it all these years and hasn't hurt herself up to this point, then, you know, maybe she won't hurt herself or hurt anyone. You know, but definitely the thought crossed my mind that this is not somebody stable, you know, certainly. And in most places, I don't know about Georgia, but here in Florida, even people that have concealed weapons permit to carry concealed, you still can't carry concealed in a bar. And that's where this altercation happened, right? Where she thought about pulling it out? Yeah, so I ha didn't, like I said, I am not very knowledgeable about guns at all. Um, so I actually didn't know that that was um, something that she wasn't allowed to do. But I do know that she um, she did break a lot of a lot of laws in general. Uh, she was uh, she was actually a drug dealer as well. So and, you know, would drive drunk. And the reason she had the gun is because uh, she lived in not Smyrna, but Austell and in a neighborhood that is a little bit more dangerous for a woman to be living in, I guess. Um, so, you know, she had it for protection and also, you know, she was she was involved in um, drug dealing and things like that. So she felt like she needed something pr to protect herself in situations like that. She did carry the gun into the bar. I, I didn't even think about the legality of that. I didn't realize how serious she was about how upset she was. I thought she was just like, oh, teehee, my team lost. I had no idea what I was what I was going to be walking into when I got to her apartment. She was taking more shots of Jack Daniels when I walked in and watching another football game on her phone, Patriots versus I I don't know who. Um and it was sort of like she was pacing and just being you know, she was a little belligerent. She would change subjects a lot. Uh, having really bad mood swings. She kept telling me that she needed me to stop her from hitting anything or headbutting anything. You know, she was just really worked up about this. Uh, you know, of course, the whole time she has the gun. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting 
in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. You know, we're sitting and talking about, now I just keep, I keep trying to get her off of what is troubling her. So I keep trying to, oh, you know, tell me about, tell me about this thing or tell me about that thing. Just trying to change the subject to anything that I can to make her not feel upset anymore. And it would work sometimes and she'd get off of the subject, but then something would bring her back to something upsetting, whether it was a football game or whether it was her situation with being currently unemployed or her legal troubles or her medical troubles or her family troubles. And she was, was pouring out to me all these things that, were really just not going well for her in life that she was stressed out about. I would try to get her away from those things and you know, she always find her way back. At some point she, she brought up the gun and she, she was talking about, well, she asked me how I felt about her having a gun. Did it make me uncomfortable? I told her it kind of did make me uncomfortable, but that, I trusted her and she started going into this whole thing about gun safety and let me, um, she showed me how to, how to tell if there's bullets in the chamber. She took the whole thing apart basically and showed me everything in it. And the whole time she's doing this, I'm thinking to myself, like she's knowledgeable. It seems like she's experienced. It seems like, you know, she's knows all these things. So it's sort of, put the thought out of my head not that it completely left my head that she would ever do something bad with the gun it just took my my mind off of it a little bit she handed me the gun even 
and had me like practice um, turning the safety on and taking the safety off and cocking it and loading it and all this stuff. I was, you know, she had me touching the gun. And, uh, you know, she would say, you know, the most important thing about guns is that you never touch the trigger unless you are 100% ready to face the repercussions of what pulling the trigger means. You know, so I, it, it sort of put my mind at ease somewhat that, you know, she's telling me all this. So, of course, she knows this. So she's not going to go do something because she knows she's going to face repercussions for it, you know, like as she's saying. So Landon, her roommate, comes back home. He worked a job where he had to take the train into Atlanta and, you know, it was a, a restaurant with a bar and stuff. So it was open quite late. So he, he got back pretty late and, you know, we were talking. And at that point, the mood had sort of lightened a bit. We were laughing and... So you were able to calm her down a little bit. Yeah. Right. Okay. It seemed like we were good. It seemed like we were in the clear. And we went to bed. I don't really know how much time exactly had passed before we were woken up by Landon, her roommate. But I do know that, he, you know, he we were sleeping and he woke us up or he woke her up specifically. And he wanted to borrow her gun. He had a guy coming over that he was going to sell uh, some weed to. So Landon was a dealer, too. Well, he was helping her. He wasn't really a dealer in his own right, but he, I guess, had a friend or somebody that he knew that wanted to buy some and, you know, he was going to sell it on, like on her behalf, basically. So he came into the room to borrow the gun or try to borrow the gun because it was pretty late at night and he just sort of felt paranoid, like something felt off to him. And he thought he might need the gun for protection. And she said, hell no. She referred to him as baby boy a lot, <laughs> which I think was pretty funny because... Meaning he wasn't quite as street smart as she was? Is that what that meant? You know, some something to that effect. I mean, he was... It was like she she just viewed him as somebody that was precious and needed to be protected or something, which she called him baby boy a lot. And it was like a term of endearment, but she was like, no baby boy. Like you can't, you're not ready for, for that, for what that means. If you have to use it, I mean, like, I don't want to put you in that situation. So she says, I'll compromise with you. I'll go with you with the gun on me. And if something happens, I can, be the one to take care of it or whatever i don't know what what they thought was was gonna happen exactly like i don't know exactly what what the problem was like why it was sketchy why he felt like he needed the gun i don't know why he woke her up you know there, there's a lot of like hindsight issues there <laughs> you know like if we had just slept everything would have been fine maybe so she went out with him with the gun. But before she left, she told me, tell everybody to wear tie-dye to my funeral. And I kind of chuckled at her because it was a joke. You know, I thought. I 
fell back asleep while they were taking care of that and was awoken by you know the door swinging open and the two of them arguing well really her screaming at him um she was really upset really distraught and i could hear her say something to the effect of why like why would you do that why would you put me in a car on a night like this with a guy like that with a gun in my hand so there was something had happened with this guy that really pissed her off and she was really mad at Landon for putting her in a stressful situation when she had already had so much stress that night I didn't really hear him say anything back to that but she sort of rushed back to the room where I was still laying in bed she was sort of like rustling stuff around slamming stuff just sort of was really like a really agitated state she did lay down though and she started crying and she said um you know i think i said something i can't take back i tried to comfort her and tell her like you know you're you're really drunk like i'm sure that situation was really bad you know but nobody's going to be mad at you in the morning like it'll be fine i i wouldn't worry about it i don't think he's going to hold it against you we're we're good you know so um she gets up and is rustling more things around i wasn't looking at what she was doing i had my back sort of turned but i just heard like a lot of agitation happening stuff slamming stuff falling over and um, I glance back and she's standing in she's standing in the um, to my left at the corner of the bed facing the wall and I saw her hand or her arm go up and that's kind of all I saw I heard a pop sound but it wasn't like the sound of what you would think a gun would sound like in a closed room it was pretty quiet. It was, wasn't like a tri like a gun sound, you know. And I, I haven't, like I said, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to guns. I don't know a lot about, you know, what they're supposed to sound like. But it wasn't like the movies. She flew to the ground. So now her body is, she is laying parallel to the foot of the bed. Her head is on my side of the bed I'm laying in the in the right side of the bed and the opposite corner from where she was standing before and the room smelled like gunpowder so I knew that the gun had gone off but there wasn't blood that I could see right away and I didn't really understand what was going on because I I didn't think that she had hurt herself I know that sounds stupid but it just wasn't like immediately apparent to me what had happened and she's laying there, and I was calling her name, Amber, Amber, thinking that she's just, like, screwing with me. Because she would jump scare me a lot. She, I, We would just be sitting there on the couch, and she would just go, Ugh, you know, like, shake me, you know, <laughs> scare the shit out of me. So I thought she was going to do that, you know. Because when you're in these situations, you're not thinking, like, the bad thing. It's never the bad thing. That can't happen, you know. So I crawled on the bed to the foot of the bed to where she was on the floor 
and I still didn't see anything. I thought, well, you know, she's, I know the gun went off, but I, I didn't think that she did, like hurt herself and maybe she got her leg or something. So I was looking at her legs and I was looking and then I got to the upper part of her body where I was, I started to shake her to try to like wake her up or, you know, make her do her prank or whatever. Cause I thought that was what was going to happen. When I shook her body a little bit, that was when I saw that there was blood at her head coming from the right, from her right temple. And I just was just shocked, like, like shock doesn't even begin to describe what that felt like because I, I knew she was depressed. I knew she had all these things going on. I knew she had a gun. I knew she wasn't stable. I knew she was an alcoholic. I knew that all these things that are sort of like a recipe for disaster were, were happening, but I just didn't think it was possible. Why the hell would she do that? You know, like, why would she do that? I just couldn't fathom it. And she wasn't breathing at that point. I didn't hear her breathe or anything, so... I ran out to to go tell Landon and get him aware of the situation. And I didn't even say anything to him. I just looked at him and pointed at the room. And he went in the room and he understood immediately what happened. She committed suicide. She shot herself in the head. And we're looking at each other and thinking about we have to call, obviously, you know, just getting through the shock of what just happened and grabbing the phone and making the call. So so Landon was the one that he got his phone out. He made the call. Yes, I think my friend just committed suicide. She's still breathing. She's still breathing. No. Eight, zero, four. Okay, what's the address there, sir? And what what type of method, sir? Huh? What type of method? It was a gun. I think it's still under her, though. I need you to get out of the room, sir. Do you think we need to start CPR or is she be on help? She, I think she's, she's still breathing. Okay. Okay, just stay on the line with me. What's your name? All right, I have the call in now, so I need you to stay on the line with me. I need to ask you some additional questions, okay? Are you with your friend now? Yes. Uh-huh. How old is she? How old is your friend, sir? How old is she? 22. Okay. Okay, sir, are you right by her now? No. You said to leave the room. And you said that you feel like you feel like she's still breathing? Yes, she was still breathing when I left. Okay. Well, do you want to start? 
CPR, sir, we can so we can get you back in there and start in CPR. <laughs> Okay, sir, if it if it's safe for you to do so, sir, let's try to get CPR started, okay? Okay, sir, if it's safe to do so, because we don't want you to discharge the gun while you're doing CPR. <laughs> Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Landon was too upset to speak, so he handed the phone to Kylie. Yeah? Okay. Hello? Yes. Do you feel like it's safe for you to do CPR? CPR. I've never done CPR in my life. Okay. Can someone go and unlock the door, ma'am? Someone unlock the door? Can someone unlock the door? So the can someone unlock the door so we can get paramedics in as soon as they get there? And I want to know: Is it safe for you all to do CPR? I'm not sure if it's safe for us to do CPR because we've never done we've never done this before, and nobody's ever shot themselves in front of us before. Okay, well, ma'am, if you don't feel like you can do it, I need you to step out of the room, okay? Levi, I, okay, like, we, we can't, I don't think either of us can do CPR, so you need to, you need to help us with this. We have them, we have them coming as fast as they can, ma'am, okay? Okay, that's fine. Are they close? Are y'all close? Yes, ma'am. They're coming as fast as they can. If you feel like if I give you directions, you can do CPR. We can get it started, ma'am. Okay, and it's it's a gated community, okay? It's, it's... Okay, ma'am. Don't worry about them getting in. The paramedics will get in. Where is the gun? Because I don't want it to discharge while we administer CPR. Trust me, she is not conscious enough to do that shit. I don't know where it no. is. I think it's underneath. Oh, wow. I'm not prepared to move my girlfriend's bloody body to get the fucking gun, okay? Okay. Well, ma'am, leave out. Step out of the room, I'm really please. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Ma'am, what's the name of the apartment complex? She she is still breathing. Are you still on the phone? Yes, ma'am. I'm asking you all, is it safe for you to remove the gun to the side so we can start CPR on your friend? Are you able to drag the body away from the gun? Remove the gun. Okay. She's not conscious. She's not going to shoot you. Ma'am, I'm not worried about her shooting you. I'm worried about you punching on her chest and the gun discharging. I'm trying to keep you all from we, being shot we, as we well. Are, we aren't. We're, nobody, we haven't touched her. We have not touched her. So what I'm saying is, are you able to move the gun so we can administer CPR, ma'am? I want to say yes, but there is a person bleeding to death in that room. 
and we love her so much. And it's really difficult to get the image that I have in my head out of my head. Okay, ma'am. I'm going to ask that you all step out of the room until we can get the paramedics We're in there. currently in the kitchen. She's okay. in the bedroom. We're okay. currently in the kitchen. Okay. We're not just, in the room with her. Just stay exactly where you are, ma'am. Help is coming as fast as they can. Thank you. What's your name, ma'am? My name is Kylie. Okay. And were you all there, or did you all just come and find her that way? I was in the same room with her when she did it. I didn't realize that she was going to do that. Okay, so you were in the same room with her? I I was laying in bed. She came in. She was upset. And I didn't realize. Okay, ma'am, so what what was said or what was being done in the time when she got the gun and shot herself? She came in the room. She was upset. She slammed the door. She told me to stay where I was, lay down. Had you all been in an argument? No, no, not me. Is, th is this your friend or your girlfriend? We've been, like, talking. We're not, like, girlfriends, but we talk. And so who was she arguing with, ma'am, when when she was upset? Her, her her roommate, her roommate. But honestly, she's been drinking tonight. She's 22. She's been drinking tonight because of the Falcons game. And I know it sounds like shit, but she's, she's drunk. She was drunk. Has she had a history of threats of suicide? Yeah. Okay. Has she ever tried, attempted to commit suicide? I haven't known her for that long, but she okay. told me that she thought of suicide a lot. Okay. And I can still hear the breathing. She's not dead. Okay, you can still hear the breathing. I can still hear the breathing. She's not conscious enough to, to do anything. It sounds like she's snoring. Okay, it sounds like she's snoring. <laughs> Hi, hi. We're right here. She's in her room. She's in her room. All right, ma'am. I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and disconnect with you. Speak with the police. But there's a gun underneath her. It's just somewhere. Can I get off the phone? With yes, ma'am. I'll disconnect. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Bye, bye. All right. Thank you. A few seconds into the call, we hear her breathe. We can hear her gasping for breath, and. Then the situation becomes, oh, shit, she has a chance, you know? So we're thinking, get here now and save her, whereas before we thought that she was dead at that point. But so partway through the call, you can hear us realizing that she's still breathing and that she's still alive and that they need to not just send... You know, they need to send, like, an ambulance and stuff, not, like, just cops. So neither of you knew how to do CPR. No. No. I am pissed at myself to this day for not knowing. Though I have since gotten certified. And through talking to the instructor, I, I did pull the instructor to the side and ask, sort of, like, what difference it would have made. I don't think much of any 
And the 911 operator was being very confusing with us because she was telling us, leave the room. And then she would say, start CPR. And we're like, okay, but we left the room because you told us to leave the room. And we don't know CPR. So what do we do? Can you like teach us? Can you tell us? And I was just so powerless. So the ambulance got there and brought her to the hospital. Did you go to the hospital with her? They wouldn't let us go to the hospital with her. When you make a 911 call for somebody who has a bullet in them, they treat it like it's a homicide first. After they rule out homicide, that's when they will say suicide. So we were under investigation. They weren't being like accusatory towards us, but they just had to make sure that they were doing their due diligence and ruling everything out. So uh, we were brought out of the room, sat down on the couches, and we had a bunch of officers standing in, in the house. Her apartment was carpeted. Uh, she had a rule about no shoes, and I just kept seeing these cops with their big boots. <laughs> I believe it was raining that night, and... Uh, you know, they're just tracking their nasty boots all over the floor. And I'm like shaking my head because I just know that she would be pissed. And <laughs> Landon, we weren't allowed to go outside on, on like the porch even. And Landon smoked cigarettes and he ended up smoking a cigarette inside the living room. And I'm just like, it was just chaotic as hell while we're waiting for this, uh, for this detective um, to get there and interview us. He, you know, they have to collect stuff from her room and take pictures and and it's it's a whole thing before they'll let anybody out did they determine right then that it was not a homicide that it was a suicide yeah so they were able to make that determination enough that night slash that morning to where we could go home you know the the next morning when, when we were ready it was uh so that would have been sunday sunday the 14th when we were allowed to leave we had to wait, of course, for the for the detectives and stuff to to get there. Um, and I had texted Jordan what had happened, and she called, and so I, I had a phone call with her, just trying to explain, like, because she didn't know I was there at all, that I was going over there, that we were talking beyond anything. So not only do I have this insane terrible fucked up news but also what the hell were you doing there and just trying to try to explain that Landon had called this guy Nate and Nate I found out was the one who gave her the gun and the gun was under his name so he bought it for her as a birthday gift. As we know, her birthday was January 5th of that year. So she had only had this gun for a few days, not a few years like I thought. And he didn't know the extent of what she had going on in her personal life because she did not open up to... She didn't open up to him the way that she opened up to some people. So he didn't know the risk that he was really taking when he bought her that for her birthday. 
We're now able to leave. I wrote her a note on napkin. Amber, I haven't known you for long at all, but I feel so grateful for every second. Even though what we've been through should have been the last time we even contacted. I'm so extremely glad it was not. You have shown me so much love and appreciation, dedication, even though our past would have never allowed you to. I think I'm cursed, to be honest. But I hope with every last drop of luck that I may have, that you live. I don't want this to be the end, Kylie. So, of course, I wrote that thinking that there may have been a possibility that she would live to read it. So you left that there at her place. Yeah, I left it at her place. Uh, she had this coffee table with a glass top where people had written her like poems and, and notes and stuff like that. When I saw the notes written under the glass table, it gave me the idea to write her a note that, you know, maybe would would end up there <laughs> with the rest of the notes at some point. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I just needed some way to get out, get out what, what I was thinking. You know, I felt like what had happened was somehow as a result of my feeling cursed, like I'm not worthy of friends, I'm not worthy of relationships, I'm not worthy of of her, and this is just the universe taking her away from me is kind of what I felt like. <sighs> she's hoping that she, I was just hoping that she would pull through. At this point, she's at the hospital. Right? Yeah, she's at, she's at the trauma unit at, uh, at Grady. We were able to leave the apartment, and I was going to head to Jordan's apartment at that time. And I had made that drive to her house, you know, pretty much every day at that point. And I knew I, I knew I know the way. I know that I knew the way. But my phone was dead. And I obviously had just been through something really fucked up. And my brain did not work at all. I got lost on the way home, or not home, but um, her house. A drive that I had made several times very recently at that point. Should have been able to make the drive again uh, without the GPS. I kept pulling over and asking for directions and looking like a crazy person because I'm crying. <laughs> and they would tell me like, oh, it's, you know, this way and this way and this way. And I would forget immediately after. And then I'd be pulling away and I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to turn around and ask them again. So I'd find somebody else. And, you know, a 20 minute drive tops took me an hour over an hour, but I somehow made it right away. I walk in and I'm just sort of explaining what happened. And um, I hugged Sky and apologized because I felt like this responsibility like I had squandered something like I had you know like I'm sorry that I let this happen to your friend because you'd known her for so long and of course we were we were very we were hoping you know that it, that it, it would be fine that she, well, not fine you know because obviously 
it's a head injury. But we were hoping that she wouldn't die, you know. And even if she came through, still, this was a suicide attempt. This is something that, yeah, be a, I mean, it's a big thing that you'd have to deal with. For sure. For sure. I had to make a few calls at their request of friends of hers that wanted to know what happened or whatever. And I told them what happened. And, you know, it was pretty tough having to tell that story the first couple of times. I would just break down. Now I'm able to, I mean, it's been a few years now, so I'm able to sort of tell it without just being a mess. But it's tough. When did you go to the hospital? We were able to go to the hospital on um, the next day, Monday. Big group of people, friends, all drove over there, got to the hospital, and we pretty quickly found out that two of us were not welcome there. And the two of us were, of course, myself and Landon, her roommate. Amber's mom, she came to the waiting area to sort of bring us in. Uh, we had to go in groups of two. And not allowed to touch her or stand next to her. Only allowed five minutes, which honestly, I don't think I was even given the full five minutes. I think she cut it short before the time. So it was Amber's mom that was making these rules about your access to her? Yeah, it was not the hospital. It wasn't her condition that was preventing us from visiting, you know, how how we ought to be visiting. It was her mom. And her mom was, she was very um, disconnected from the fact that this was a suicide. I believe it had already been cleared at that point, you know, obviously enough to where we could leave and we weren't, you know, criminals. She didn't seem to know that her daughter had depression. She didn't seem to know that anything would cause this at all. She had no idea. So I guess, I don't know, you know, maybe Amber just didn't talk to her mom about these things or maybe she knew, but she was just really in denial at this point. She was convinced that somebody had killed her daughter or somebody had shot her daughter. She was yelling accusations, mostly at Landon because he, you know, he's a man and I guess her mom figured it more likely that the man in the situation would have hurt her. But I mean, she just wasn't, she wasn't believing anything we were saying. <laughs> her dad paced the hallways of the hospital and said, you know, you get in there and you take a good look at what you could have prevented. It's almost kind of, I mean, they don't know you or Landon very well, I don't think, but it's as a a parent in that kind of situation, it's almost understandable that they would just lash out. Yeah. I mean, I I do get it to some extent. I just, well, I mean, that hospital visit was traumatizing in and of itself being treated like that and i just i wish that they could have stepped back and understood like these are two people that had to deal with this like on the front line so to say 
how could they have just thought that you know that we were in any sort of emotional position to take what they were throwing at us you know but Landon and I did not get to go in together they separated us so they put Landon and uh, our other friend Alex together in a group and then myself and this girl Sarah together and when we got into the hospital room I don't really know what I was expecting but her she was hooked up to tubes breathing tubes wasn't responsive although she was making like squeaking noises as if she kind of understood that somebody was in the room and maybe she might have been trying to say something her face was very swollen I could see how swollen everything was with respect to her nose because her nose stayed the same size and everything else was just sort of ballooned out beyond her nose and discolored she was, it was really rough shape, and uh, to my understanding, the swelling internal as well. She was having brain swelling. Her mom, she kept saying that the detectives think something's fishy going on, and they're going to investigate this to the full extent. You know, they're going to get to the bottom of this. But none of that was true, though. No. No, it wasn't. Um, the detectives did not think anything at all was going on. I mean, especially, you know, looking back, at, I got the police report after the fact because uh, I had some question in my mind as to whether it was a press contact or, or maybe a ricochet or something. Because like I said, her arm went forward. So I thought maybe maybe she shot the, you know, something on the floor, you know, out of anger and it just like bounced. I don't know. The, there's records of all the the detectives, you know, inner thoughts about this and every step of the way, they're like, this is a suicide. This is a suicide. Like, it's obvious. They found text messages of hers where she's talking about having depression, thinking about suicide, being out of medication. They found empty pill bottles of depression medications, some with her name, some without her name, like with a different person's name. So she was taking other people's medication to substitute the medication that she no longer had access to, which is another factor that led to what happened. Because if you're off of antidepressants, taking an abnormal dose, skipping days, mixing it with alcohol, like all these things are extremely dangerous and can very much lead you to suicide. But her mom was not having any of it. And it was it was really tough to endure that I mean I would have in my ideal world I would have you know sat by her and held her hand and cried next to her and told her to pull through and I just you know I just wasn't allowed to do any of that um, I was treated like I was a criminal like I was a, like it was all my fault after Landon and I after our groups had left her parents decided they had had enough, like they didn't want anybody else to go in. So it was only in our carpool of people, it was only us four that were allowed to go in. So Jordan and Skye weren't allowed to go in at all because um, the parents were distraught and had had enough of 
visitors. And they're in control. Yeah, and they're in control, and, and we had to leave. How long did Amber last? She passed away at 8.11 p.m. on January 16th, so the, the next day, Tuesday. Basically, the swelling was just too much. They weren't going to be able to do anything. There wasn't anything that they could do. I was so deep in denial when she passed, like when she actually had passed. Like I was still talking about her in present tense. I was really horrified and worried that maybe I wouldn't be allowed to go to her funeral. So that was making me really upset, thinking that if her parents acted like that in the hospital, like there's no way they're going to let me land and go. Landon at this point was staying with my mom and I in my dad's old room. So I had mentioned how that Christmas would be our last Christmas together. Uh, my dad had already left the state at this point. So he was had left to live in South Carolina where he's, where he's still at. And uh, so we had an empty room. My parents had separate bedrooms pretty much my whole life growing up. They had a very odd relationship, if you can call it that. So we, we had the spare bedroom and Landon was staying with us because his name was not on the lease at that apartment. And uh, not only was it just too much for him to bear being there anymore, uh, but he would not be allowed to be there anymore. Uh, her, her parents had, had made it very clear that nobody was supposed to be living there, regardless of any arrangements they had made. It seems so unusual that, I mean, Landon isn't someone that you had known for a long time either. We were trauma bonded. We had yeah. been through this awful thing together and... We were the only people that understood what we were going through. Yeah, I mean, complete stranger. The only way that I know this person is he was her roommate, and we had been through this awful thing together. And now he was staying with us in my dad's old bedroom. And <laughs> I mean, we, we really helped each other through a lot of, of that. So were you, were you allowed to attend the funeral? Thankfully, we were. I don't know how they came to the conclusion that they were going to let us come, but they did. There was actually two separate things. There was a quote-unquote viewing, which was not a viewing, because there was uh, she was cremated. But it was a visitation-type thing. It was at a funeral home, but it wasn't a funeral. It was sort of casual. We were, we were just milling around and sharing stories and stuff like that. I wore tie-dye to that, as she instructed, and I did tell people that that was what she said. I said, hey, as hard as it is to believe, and as ridiculous as this sounds right now, she did actually tell me this. So if you want to do that, you can. But <laughs> some people some people did wear tie-dye. You don't often see that at a funeral. Yeah, you don't. You don't. <laughs> she was a big fan of tie-dye. You know, she liked colors and happy things, despite being not very internally happy. She had this always like the biggest smile. Most of her pictures are, are her with this big grin on her face. How did you deal with this? I mean, typically counseling is what would help get through something like this, right? Did you get, did you do that? I called my poppy. I call him. He's my my grandpa on my dad's side. I called my poppy and I asked him 
for help. Um, I said, hey, like, do you know any counselors or anything? Because I know he's a kind of a community staple. Like, he knows a lot of, a lot of people. And I, I just figured, like, maybe he knows somebody, like a friend or somebody who's a counselor who would be able to, to help me out. And uh, I told him what what happened, you know, minus the drugs and the gay parts, you know, because I'm, like I said, not out to anybody, which, you know, of course, if somebody does hear this podcast and finds out about this, like, I, I'm sorry that I didn't tell you. Now you're out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it'd be like that. <laughs> it's somehow easier to tell a podcast with thousands of listeners than it is to tell your own family. So yeah, he, uh, my poppy was a big help with this, with this whole thing. He is a surprisingly very understanding of mental health elder person, uh, because he has his own mental health struggles with being a, uh, two war veteran with PTSD. So he was, he was very helpful with, with helping me get a counselor and, uh, he paid for six sessions for me to go talk to the counselor and try to work out some of the initial things, which it definitely helped. Definitely helped. Uh, I'm not cured, obviously. Um, it didn't like take everything away, but I do think that it made those first couple of months possible because what I found after this is that the pain somebody feels when they when they commit suicide does not go away it spreads to other people and so i was pretty depressed before this happened and then of course the assault added to that and then of course the trauma from her uh doing this in front of me and from losing her uh the grief and the guilt. That's a whole lot of things piling on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. losing my entire friend group, my entire support system. Uh, everybody that I knew hated me. So I, uh, you know, I kind of refer to it as like the, like a poison. It's like a like a poisonous, suicidal feeling. And it, you know, it goes away sometimes and then it comes back and then the pain that that doesn't leave but spreads, you know. This was a few years ago. Yeah, this happened five years ago. How are you doing now? Two years after this happened, I, I got diagnosed with PTSD because I... I was I was working a, a job where I was um, doing like woodworking, so I was working with uh, loud tools in a very loud environment, and I started noticing that when I would use certain tools, I would get really upset and like cry and stuff, and I would just sit there and be working on putting together wooden frames and things like that with a nail gun and I just wouldn't be able to stop seeing the image of, you know, of her and, and her blood and every, just everything associated with that. The, the feelings and imagery of everything associated with that would come back to me with the sounds of these nail guns because the nail gun sound, like I said, it, 
the gunshot didn't sound too much like a gunshot. It sounded like a loud pop, like almost like a nail gun. And so I noticed that I was getting like really distraught at work and like crying every day at work. You know, and obviously I had after effects like besides that had gone through some issues with self-harm, uh, some issues with with alcoholism, some issues with self-medicating with, you know, Valium and Xanax and things like that. You know, so I, I had, you know, gone through some after effects for sure before the two years. But when I realized like this was two years ago, I didn't think it was going to go away, but I also didn't think that I would be crying at work every single day because of a nail gun. So I knew that I needed help again, um, that the six counseling sessions after this happened weren't, weren't going to fix me. So I started looking online for, I don't know, like group therapy. Cause I, I heard that group therapy you don't have to pay money for it usually. So I just wanted to find something that I could do for free because I couldn't really afford therapy or counseling at the time. I had moved out on my own. I was paying my own bills. I didn't li live with Landon anymore. So I, I had a lot of bills and a lot of responsibility. Uh, I couldn't afford counseling. But I looked up this uh, group and I found what's called um, Survivors of Suicide. It's a, a group that meets up usually once a month. And they just, everybody in the group has lost somebody to suicide in some form or fashion. I found that really helpful going to those. These are your people. Yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe that I would be the only person there who had witnessed one. But actually the group leader had witnessed her loved one's suicide as well. Same method. So then I, I discovered that, you know, this feeling that I had where I'm alone and feel like, uh, like I'm the only person going through this. It's just not, it's not true. It's not true. There are other people who have had the misfortune of witnessing or finding. I know I, I listened to that episode that you did with the, woman who found her husband there's other people going through this uh, so i would encourage like if, if there's any listeners out there who are going through any sort of suicide loss that there's um website maybe you can link it in the description to find a support group a free support group to talk to other people who have lost people to suicide yeah we can do that you know it's it's remarkable that someone that you only knew for like a couple of weeks could have such a profound and yeah. <laughs> long effect on your life. And I've thought about that a lot, you know, what it means to know somebody and what it means to love somebody and what it means to be hurt by somebody's loss, miss someone. I don't think time has anything to do with it. I mean, it certainly can, but we had a very intense time together I miss her. I, you know, certainly for a while after she passed away, I would get these feelings of like, you know, wanting to text her, wanting to send her some a funny meme or, you know, I meet somebody and would think like, oh, this would be somebody that, that I think Amber would have liked or, you know, it just sucks. She was 22, only 22 years old, had only just turned 22. 
And uh, I myself, I mean, I'm I'm 23 now. I, I had to turn 22 as well. And thinking about it like that, I'm like, I haven't lived enough life at 22. I think it's important to tell the story and to let people hear it because... No, I had certainly never thought about the people who find someone or witness someone committing suicide. And I feel like to a lot of people, you know, obviously it's a tragedy and we miss the person and we feel sad for the person's loss. But the other thing people often don't consider is that there are living people who are hurting because of it. You know, that we're left to pick up the pieces and deal with it and then the guilt and the shame that comes with it, feeling feeling responsible, feeling like you could have done something or said something or I mean, my situation I didn't have time, I didn't even know um that she had the gun in her hand, that she was playing there wasn't like a an opportunity for me to talk her down. You know, I think people just expect that oh, well, if somebody was there, then, you know, they could have done something about it. They could have they could have been the one to save the day. I'm like, Unfortunately, I'm not the one who saved the day. Nobody could save the day. So I, I, I just want to encourage people to have empathy for the people who are there or are there shortly afterwards. Because it's a really hard position to be in with the guilt and the, the, you know, certainly the survivor's guilt. You heard Kylie mention that she lost a lot of her friends over this incident. For a while, even her best friend Jordan was part of that. But since then, Kylie and Jordan have rekindled their friendship, and in fact, they're now roommates. If you or someone you know is having thoughts about suicide or self-harm, please be aware that you can call and talk to someone any time of the day or night by dialing 988. This used to be called the National Suicide Hotline, but it's now the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Someone is always available, and it's always free and confidential. Also, you can see the website that Kylie used to find support for those who have survived loss. That information along with some pictures of Kylie and Amber, are in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 125. I also wanted to mention that Kylie is in our Facebook group, so if there's a question that I didn't ask that you're wondering about, you can ask her in the discussion about this episode. We've had about 200 new people join the group just in the last couple of weeks, and many of them are longtime listeners of the podcast who finally joined the Facebook group just because they wanted to comment on the last episode about Josh being struck by lightning. And boy, were there some comments about that one. If you're wondering what all the fuss is about, come on over. Whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And before we get to this week's listener story, I want to tell you about a podcast that I'm pretty sure you're going to love. Obviously, because I'm not going to tell you about a show that I don't think you'll like, Anyway, this is a fairly new show, and it's called Beastie Bonds. I'm subscribed to it because I'm a big animal lover, and I know you are too. On this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of people talking about their remarkable experiences and situations 
where the bond between animals and humans made all the difference. It's hosted by my friend AJ, and even though she's new to podcasting, you wouldn't know it by listening to this show. She has a great voice, and the podcast is very well produced. And the stories are great. For a first episode, I recommend the one titled 194 Days. You can subscribe anywhere or listen at the website at beastiebonds.com. And now, this week's listener story. This is how we end every episode, a story sent in by a listener. If you have a story that you can tell in about five minutes, record it on your phone and email it to me, scott at whatwasthatlike.com. You just might hear yourself on a future episode. In this story, we get a snippet of what it can be like to be a baseball team mascot. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks, because I'm already working on the first episode for 2023. Hi, my name is Mark from Shorewood, Illinois. I worked in minor league baseball for five years. My assigned job was the marketing department, but in the minors, everyone wears a lot of hats and pitches in wherever they can. This meant I spent a good amount of time in a mascot suit. The majority of my time in the suit was with a team in South Florida called the Stone Crabs. You can imagine the heat of being in a thick, furry suit at noon on a July day in Florida. If you can get through the sweat, though, being a mascot can be a pretty magical job. People constantly call your name, want to take pictures with you, and even have you sign things. Cards, baseballs, programs. I even had a kid give me his shoe and another give me his bare arm to sign. I also got to dance on the dugout in front of a sellout crowd of 4,000 roaring fans. The one story that captures the true power of a mascot, however, is this. One night as I did my laps around the park, a few kids started following me. I turned around, gave them high fives, posed for pictures, and did all my usual routine, then turned to walk elsewhere. The kids kept following me, and I noticed that there were more kids than there were last time. I decided to see how far they would go with this, so I started marching, swinging my arms dramatically at my sides. They copied it. So I began marching my way around the entire stadium, and they followed. As we approached the third base seating section, fans starting to clap in time with our march. We continued on through the bowl. I led, the kids followed, and the clapping grew. Here was this mascot leading a band of children around the ballpark. It was really quite incredible. We must have made two or three laps before the kids finally grew tired and went back to their families, but not before a few group photos were taken by grateful parents. It's amazing how much power a shag carpet with a funny nose can have. Thank uh-huh.